0: This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website.
1: Uh, Good morning and welcome to this Resolution Foundation webinar on youth worklessness. Uh, There's no need to adjust your sets, I'm not Torsten Bell as originally advertised. (laughs) I'm Mike Brewer, Chief Economist here at the Resolution Foundation and I'm very delighted to welcome you here online and hear you in person uh, to this discussion. Now our focus today is on young people aged 18 to 24 which means that those people we're talking about today will not have been born when I started my career back in the late 1990s and back then, we were worried about worklessness overall, and definitely worried about youth worklessness, which was particularly high, as you'll see in a, in a minute. Um, so what we're going to do today is think about what's changed over the last 20, 25 years to youth worklessness, uh, reflect on the experience of the pandemic, which definitely had some uh, which surprises in good ways as well as bad ways, and then think about um, where policy needs to go in the decade ahead to, to help prevent youth worklessness from becoming another problem yet again. So to do that, we'll hear first from Louise Murphy, who is an economist here at the Foundation and author of a report, which is out today, which you can download from our website. And then we'll hear from Steve Haynes, who's Director of Public Affairs at Impetus and co-chair of the Youth Employment Group. And then we'll hear from Sam Avanzo-Wendit, who is at the Learning and Work Institute, where she's Deputy Director. She's also a co-chair and co-founder of the Youth Employment Group. And then finally, Helen Undy, who's Chief Executive of the Money and Mental Health Institute. And the fact that we have Helen here from that particular institute is a bit of a hashtag spoiler alert as to what some of Louise's findings are going to be. Uh, So we're very grateful to the Health Foundation for funding this work, which forms part of their Young People's Future Health Inquiry. Uh, We at Resolution Foundation are doing a two-year programme of work thinking about how the labour market affects young people's health as part of that. Uh, so, the usual logistics, which all loyal listeners will know, uh, if, you want to, if you're want, if you watching live online, then go to Slido and type in youth worklessness, all one word, and that's how you can ask questions or take part in our polls. And for those of you here in person, it's good to see you, and there'll be a roving microphone at various points in the second half of the talk. Uh, Slido is also the place to go for our online polls, which will be appearing throughout the second half of the discussion. And we hope to be all done and wrapped up by 10.45. Uh, So, Louise, over to you.
2: Great, thank you, Mike. And I'd just like to say thank you again to the Health Foundation for funding this stream of work. And also, thank you to my colleague, Kathleen, here at the Resolution Foundation, for her support on this project. So, I think it's safe to say that we're at a fairly unique time for youth worklessness. As the country is still recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic, youth unemployment like unemployment overall, has reached a record low. Understandably, this has dominated headlines and political discussion with newspapers pointing out that, for example, we've got um, more job vacancies than there are unemployed young people. In other good news, last year, when there were still Covid restrictions in place, the number of young people who are NEET, that's those who are not in employment, education or training, reached a record low. In this report, we take a step back to understand the longer-term trends in youth worklessness to put these recent findings into perspective. And when we talk about worklessness, what we mean is those young people who are either unemployed or economically inactive and not in full-time education. So I think it's only right to start with the good news, and that's that for both men and women, youth worklessness has fallen since the 1990s. Indeed, since 1995, there's been a 300,000 reduction in the number of young people who are workless. That's pretty remarkable, I think, especially given the turbulence of recent decades, with worklessness recovering both from the recent COVID-19 pandemic and also the financial crisis. But what we can see in this chart is that the good news isn't equally spread, that young women have seen much bigger improvements than young men. So of that 300,000 decrease in worklessness, 280,000 of it has been among young women, whereas worklessness among young men has fallen by just 20,000. And while it's important to look at differences in worklessness between young men and women, it's also important to look at the differences between different ethnic groups. When we do so, we can see that the biggest improvements have been seen by young women from Black, Bangladeshi and Pakistani backgrounds. In this chart, we can see, for example, that the proportion of young women from Bangladeshi backgrounds who are workless has more than halved since the start of the century. This means that by the end of the 2010s, although these young women from Black, Bangladeshi and Pakistani backgrounds were were still slightly more likely to be workless than young women from white or Indian backgrounds, the ethnicity gap was much smaller than at the start of the century. It's also important to look at differences by ethnicity to understand the small improvements that have been seen among young men. We can see on this chart that young black and Bangladeshi men have seen slight improvements in worklessness. Young men from Pakistani and Indian backgrounds have seen little to no change, whereas concerningly, young white men have actually seen an increase in worklessness since the start of the century. So it's clear then that when we look beneath the surface, This good news of recent decades hasn't been experienced equally by all young people. And to understand this, to understand why the overall number of youth worklessness has fallen, but some groups have benefited more than others, it's important to split worklessness into its two components. Unemployment, shown here on the left, and economic inactivity on the right. Just to be clear what the difference between these two are, Unemployment is those young people who are out of work and actively looking for work and would be ready to take up a job if it was offered to them. On the other hand, economic inactivity looks at those young people who are out of work but who aren't looking for or ready for work. And we can see here that unemployment has moved in tandem for young men and women in recent years, with young men having consistently higher rates of unemployment than women and both men and women seeing peaks during the financial crisis and the COVID pandemic. On the other hand, the trends in inactivity have been acting in opposite directions for young men and women. Historically, young women were much more likely to be economically inactive than young men. But since the mid-1990s, inactivity rates among young women have halved. At the same time, inactivity rates among young men have almost doubled, meaning that by 2021, the gender gap in economic inactivity had almost closed. So, it's clear that since the 1990s, as well as this overall reduction in worklessness, we've seen the makeup of youth worklessness be transformed. And that's important because this rise in economic inactivity among young men means that these young people are more likely to be inactive for a longer time. As we see in the chart here, four in five young people who are economically inactive remained out of work one year later either staying in inactivity or moving into unemployment. On the other hand, shown on the right, young people who are unemployed are more likely to move into a worker study. And so when we take together the two trends just discussed, that rising inactivity among young men and the fact that young people who are inactive tend to remain workless for longer, this is translating into a rise in prolonged worklessness among young men. We've seen since 1995 that the proportion of workless young men who are workless for over a year has increased from 56 to 70%. So having discussed these trends of falling in activity among young women and rising in activity and therefore rising prolonged worklessness among young men, we now look at the reasons behind this. For young women we can see in this chart here that the biggest change has been a reduction in the number of people who are economically inactive in order to look after family. This has fallen by 220,000 since 2006. This is mainly because there are fewer young women having children but also because we're seeing more young mothers enter employment be it full-time or part-time work. What we can also see in this chart is that for young men and women economic inactivity due to health problems is on the rise. For example, for young men, this number has doubled since 2006. So then when we look at this all together, we can see that for young women, the fall in inactivity due to looking after family is so large that it basically dwarfs everything else that's going on. But for young men, there's nothing similar acting down the way. And so this rise in inactivity due to health problems is pushing up overall inactivity rates for young men. And one reason to be concerned about this rise in inactivity due to health problems is that these young people are especially likely to have mental health problems. Of course, the relationship between worklessness and mental health is complex and it's not necessarily the case that mental health is the driver for worklessness for all of these young people. Some of them will have other health problems or disabilities. But it's nonetheless concerning that two-thirds of young people who are inactive due to sickness or disability have poor mental health. And so when we think about this sort of rising group of young people who are inactive due to health problems, I think we need to bear in mind that the majority of them have poor Mm -hmm. mental health, which will be impacting their chances of finding work or, or study. And this is something we dug into a little bit more in this report. We looked into the implications of mental health on young people's prospects of worklessness. And we found that young people with mental health problems were both more likely to become workless and also more likely to remain workless for a longer time than those who didn't have mental health problems. First of all, young people with mental health problems had increased odds of moving from work or study into worklessness one year later. And also, as we show in this chart, young people who are economically inactive due to health problems, including mental health, tend to remain workless for longer. We see here that four in five young people who are inactive due to health problems are out of work for two or more years compared to just a quarter of those who are unemployed. And I think this highlights just how important it, it is, this changing makeup of youth worklessness, that we need to look at this, as well as just the overall, um, the overall number of young people who are workless. Because if we see a falling number of young people who are unemployed, but a rising number of those who are inactive, this means that we'll see more young people who are workless for a longer time. And moving on to my final chart, This is really a bit of a warning for the future. As many of us know, mental health problems among young people are on the rise and this means that economic inactivity due to health problems is likely to become an even bigger problem. It's true that the proportion of young people with mental health problems is rising, but it's also true, as we see in this chart, that the severity of mental health problems among young people is is increasing. This chart tracks the average general health questionnaire score just among those young people who have a mental health problem and what a general health questionnaire score does is it suggests a high, the higher the score the worse a young person's mental health is and we can see that the average score has been increasing quite sharply since the 2010s and this as well as being immediately bad for young people's health will have knock-on consequences on their chances of finding work or study and so I think regardless of the impact of COVID on young people's mental health since it is too early really to know the full impact of the pandemic on young people's mental health, the pre-existing trends are reason enough to worry. And so to conclude with some thoughts towards policy, I think although the pandemic has been much better than feared when it comes to youth unemployment or economic inactivity, largely thanks to the success of the furlough scheme, the pre-existing trend of rising inactivity due to health problems needs to be addressed. Policymakers need to accept that the makeup of youth worklessness looks very different now than in the 1990s. It's no longer true that we have lots of young men who are unemployed and lots of young mothers who are inactive. And indeed, on current trends, the good news of recent decades risks being undone as the rise in inactivity due to health problems is set to overtake this fall in inactivity due to, to caring needs among young mothers as early as 2024, policymakers should think about how to engage these young people who are economically inactive, who have often been dubbed as hard to reach. They are less likely to be engaging with job centres or local authorities, and so policymakers will need to take a step back and think about how to engage these young people who are furthest from existing support services.
3: Thanks.
1: It's going to lose claps. Thank you very much, uh, Louise. I mean, what I take from that is how some very positive social changes or very positive uh, responses to policy initiatives, two decades ago, um, have perhaps hidden what is a much less good story about that rise in health-related and especially mental health-related inactivity and, and the rise in worklessness amongst uh, amongst young men. Um, if you've joined late online, uh, then don't forget to go to Slido and type in youth worklessness where you can ask your questions and see our polls later on, which will, uh, which will go live in a bit. But uh, first, Steve, what do you make of all this? Uh,
0: thanks, Mike. And firstly, uh, Louise, just congratulations. It's a, I found it really important, very thought-provoking um, report and actually really timely. Uh, to bring to the fore something that all of us working with and for young people, I guess, recognise, which is this rise in uh, complex mental health conditions um, and this long tail from the pandemic that perhaps we can't quite put our finger on yet, but we're seeing this, and I think, um, uh, very worrying trend where young people Uh, going into work for the first time, don't necessarily have the same sense of confidence and ambition to really take on uh, the challenge. So there's some very practical issues, and this is the time to have this debate. Now, three quick things uh, from me, and then maybe one area for a bit of further investigation. Firstly, I think this should be a real call to action, and I hope it echoes uh, through the corridors of Whitehall and those committee rooms at local authorities, because whilst we have seen the move from a significant challenge uh, proposed by the, the pandemic, we're starting to see a deepening and a lengthening of the problem facing some groups of young people uh, in terms of their economic activity. And Sam and my uh, colleague as a co-chair of the youth employment group, Tony Wilson, who I'm sure is uh, familiar to many of you, uh, I think neatly puts it by saying we've avoided an acute." crisis but we're facing a chronic crisis and to me that is a huge waste of human potential Um, all of these young people who are pointed out in the report who are going to be economically inactive not just for the near future but the long-term future and i think we should be worried about that uh, not just on an economic base um, but for those uh, future flourishing of those young people in particular those from disadvantaged background um, but one of the other things I noticed in the report is a lot of reasons to be hopeful as well. So we shouldn't just see this as another problem we're facing, but that coordinated, effective policy making and implementation can make a significant difference. My second thought is about the importance of data. Now, a few years back, Impetus did the Youth Jobs Gap, um, and we particularly looked at questions of geography and socio-economic background. And I think as we see a changing nature of the challenge, and, and you're right to point out, Louise, that. Um, we should be challenging some of our inherent assumptions about what the drivers are here. We need to be looking at these layers of data um, to make sure that we're getting a really clear picture of the young people we're trying to support. Um, On Friday I was working uh, with a group of CEOs of charities and one of those um, CEOs talked about um, uh, somebody they're working with, a black young person who has had a progressive hearing loss uh, during their time in alternative provision. And actually, I think we need to remember that there are young people underneath these statistics, uh, and we need to engage with them and listen to those on the front line and make sure that youth voice is really clear in the recommendations we make. Um, my, my third point then is around um, policy solutions and coordination. What really struck me is that one of the biggest drivers of this positive story is actually something that might not necessarily uh, be in the purview of education and employment specialists and the teenage pregnancy reduction strategy. Um, I think it's really important not only to look at the whole young person, but the whole system. Um, in which they're living. Um, We at the Youth Employment Group have been looking to ministers to start to coordinate a bit better. Let's bring together the Minister for Employment, who we meet and has has been um, uh, a great person to take forward a lot of the agenda, with the Minister for Skills, um, the Minister responsible for young people, um, the Minister for Industry, And perhaps, and this report made me think, we need to bring in health and social care as well. Um, Are we effectively coordinating these programmes around young people? We've seen a lot of success with interventions like Kickstart, but what are the long-term solutions? And to your point, Louise, about hard to reach, uh, quite early on in my career when I was in local government, uh, somebody once said to me, these young people aren't hard to reach, you're just standing in the wrong place. I mean, how long are we going to stand in the wrong place, scratching our heads before we move to the right place to be able to make uh, a real impact in this area? Um, The one, my last comment really is, uh, in terms of further investigation, is this question of skills. Um, Back to the youth jobs gap, we found that so much uh, of what was predicting uh, employment outcomes was having English and maths at level two. And I think that still remains absolutely crucial. So there's those formal uh, skills that we need to get in place. The other thing, and this is particularly the case for for young people from disadvantaged backgrounds, um, is those skills for work. What we said was the 50% of the other stuff. And that's what we're going to be looking at next. What are these practical skills? of work readiness? What are the things that young people need in order to be able to get into work effectively? Um, It is the case that there are just too many young people who are not ready for work. And I think the impact of the pandemic with the reduced opportunities for entry-level jobs, um, with the lack of opportunities for work experience, leaves this particular cohort that we need to intervene a bit more effectively and consistently. Um, So thank you for inviting me to, to give the response. Those were the things that particularly struck me.
1: Uh, thanks very much, Steve. That's great. Um, and uh, your, your point at the end reminded me of something I was going to say later on, which, which is I will give a plug to the IFS, who have a report out this morning looking at um, adult education uh, and where they show that um, even with government plans to increase spending on adult education over this parliament, it will still leave spending 25% below 2010 levels by 2025. And the IFS also point, which I think echoes what you just said, that, that some of the apprenticeships has been shifting away from basic entry level apprenticeships towards advanced apprenticeships and, and level three and above funding. So that's clearly relevant for our discussion here. Um, but thank you very much. Uh, so Sam, as well as ha- also having worked in the past, uh, you now do lots of work on uh, learning work, uh, learning skills and employment.
3: That's right. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Uh, I have a feeling we're going to very much agree with each other on this panel. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Because I also want to say, great report, Louise. Um, Really supportive of the findings um, and also the importance of taking that long-term view. Uh, This isn't just about the pandemic. This is about a long-standing issue. Uh, But where do we find ourselves? So, again, agree. The, it's not a youth unemployment crisis that we face, and that is why the Youth Unemployment Group actually formed in sort of March 2020. Is we know that young people fare worse in recession, so we, we were worried about the youth unemployment crisis. Actually, we should sort of you know pat ourselves on the back, employers and government for reacting to that and actually putting some programs in place which which have helped. But where, where do we find ourselves? Is the economic inactivity issue not just amongst young people, older workers as well? But we're focusing on young people today. And that was also a reason we formed the group, which was we were really worried that in, in this sort of crisis of youth unemployment, those young people who were at the back of the queue to start with were just going to fall further back. There would be more young people to think about, more young people to help, and that those young people who weren't being helped, who were being missed out, were going to fall further behind. And that's actually why the Youth Employment Group still still exists, actually. We haven't packed up because that challenge uh, is is very much still here, and your report highlights that. I was just going to mention that, um, thinking about the the, the sort of people behind the figures, um, we're actually uh, conducting a piece of research with Prince's Trust Uh, to to do a bit of the data analysis, luckily uh, we agree with many of your findings, Uh, but also to do some some polling of neat young people, and also a number of focus groups as well, because we really want to understand those situations that young people are facing, Um, and uh, everybody should look out for that shortly. Uh, But we, we know why is this important, we know that economic inactivity has a disproportionate impact, we know that some groups of young people miss out more than others, Uh, And that just adds to this cycle of disadvantage. Uh, It also tends to hold back the job prospects and earnings in the future of those young people. And, and then, of course, it, has, it impacts life chances. And I think one bit I'd throw in there is thinking about life chances increasingly in this cost of living crisis as well. What does that mean for those young people who are, who are struggling to get by? But what I've been actually asked to talk about is uh, our insights on what works. So what works to help young people at risk of becoming neat? Uh, and Learning on Work Institute did a, a piece, an evidence review in uh, March 2020 for Department for Education, which looked at uh, you know what, what are the interventions that are working What does the evidence tell us? Uh, Because we really need to build on that when we're thinking about what do we do? So, I mean, this will not be unfamiliar to people who work with young people at all, but I will summarise those findings. Um, Multiple interventions and wraparound services uh, work effectively for disadvantaged learners uh, and can help improve attainment and, and job prospects. Uh, we also found that traineeships, uh, supported apprenticeships, uh, uh, apprenticeships, supported internships—I should say—can uh, deliver positive uh, employment and learning outcomes for young people at risk of becoming NEAT. And you touched on it as well, Steve. Basic skills support really, really important uh, to improve progress and reduce the, the chance of being NEAT. Uh, Something that obviously Kickstart was looking to address was uh, access to work experience, uh, really key in in reducing long term, uh, oh, improving long term employment and earning gains. Mentoring and counselling is an effective route to supporting pupils at risk of becoming neat. Uh, A good example of that would be somebody Impetus works with Think Forward, for example, Um, work like that to help build life skills and confidence, connecting people to relevant services. Multiple interventions which target motivation and confidence can help to improve engagement, uh, although delivery has to be flexible around that. Um, One-to-one tailored engagement, uh, that's that's really vital. We found that learning communities can help 16 to 18-year-olds at key transition points. And we also found that um, in some countries, financial incentives can work, but we need a little bit more testing of that in the UK. so we also overall found that there was a bit of a scarcity of evidence, as, as we often do, uh, and that there's a, a lot more work to do on, on what works uh, to support young people at risk of being neat. But more importantly than that, the evidence that we do have, we need policymakers to act on and to think about. But not in this kind of program programitis, like initiativeitis kind of way where, oh, we've got... A, you know, a piece of evidence, let's put a programme in. This has got to be, as Steve said, you know, we've got to stop the chop and change that's impacting education, employment and learning systems. We've got to think longer term. And another nod to Tony Wilson is that, you know, if we're thinking about funding, uh, Kickstart was two billion pounds, 630 million of which was underspent and handed back to Treasury. Just think, what could we do with 630 million pounds for the young people that need support now? Now, it's interesting because that £2 billion was for the youth unemployment crisis, but missed out 16-, 17-year-olds, missed out young people who weren't in contact with Job Centre. We pointed that out at the time, and government did, did realise that. But, you know, £630 million could could make, it, make a big dent in that prob- problem. Uh, so I think we need to think about a higher ambition, a, a bigger overall strategy, as Steve said, bringing this together. And I think, I, I've said this for, for the last two years, for, the, for these young people that were thinking about you know, the support, it's not about building back better. We don't want to build back to the problems that you've just highlighted, Louise. We want to build forward and do it better than we did before uh, with employers, civil society, and young people themselves.
1: All right. Thank you very much, <laughs> Sam. A very powerful call to action. And um, Helen. Your take, please.
4: Great, thank you very much. Um, yeah, good morning. And for anyone who doesn't know us, so um, I'm the Chief exec of the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute. We are a research and campaigning organisation and our focus is very specifically on that link between financial difficulty and mental health problems. So you're three and a half times as likely to be in problem debt if you're living with mental health problems. And clearly, work is a very big part of that. So I was delighted to see the real focus on mental health in your report, Louise. I'm very pleased to be invited to kind of reflect on that a little bit Um, the three things I wanted to focus on in particular one is a quick point about the prevalence of mental health problems and kind of the history of where we are on that Um, a very quick reflection on what we can learn from wider experiences of mental health and work so how mental health problems affect our ability to work and the likelihood of being in work and a little bit about why and which I think will help us come back to some of those solutions as well so on prevalence, I mean, Louise has covered a lot about the recent, uh, the recent data on prevalence. I think it's important to say that even before this, we had seen a rising prevalence of mental health problems. So the Adult Psychiatric Morbidity Survey is one of the most in-depth data sets that looks at mental health prevalence. Is a clinical screener, which is important to know because it's not about people um, disclosing that they have mental health problems. Often you get a lot of bad reporting of mental health data where people say, oh, it's just because we all feel more comfortable talking about it now, that's not it. Um, Actually, the clinical screener data shows that we have a much higher prevalence of mental health problems than we know because many people are living with mental health problems who don't know it or would never tell anyone and would never seek support. So there's been an increase in prevalence of mental health problems far before the pandemic. Between 2007 and 2014, there was a 6% increase in prevalence of common mental health problems, so particularly anxiety and depression amongst women, and a 3% decrease for men, which is really interesting in the context of the findings that you've published today about the differences between men and women's experiences. Um, So we were already seeing this trend, particularly acute for young women, actually, and then during the pandemic, we've seen prevalence of anxiety and depression peak. So we saw that go up, particularly during lockdowns and kind of the, the more um, granular data. You can see the impact on our mental health and well-being of each lockdown, particularly during the winter months. That has since come down. So we are at a lower level of anxiety and depression amongst the population than we were during the most acute periods of the pandemic. But it's not come down to where we were pre-pandemic. So. I think it's as you say it's a bit too early to know the full effect on mental health but I do expect that we are going to be continuing with a higher prevalence of mental health problems than we've seen before Um, that's really important to know in the context of employment employment figures because it's very clear that living with a mental health problem makes it harder to sustain and to enter employment we did um, a really big piece of work, the Mental Health and Income Commission, about a year or two ago, looking at the links between mental health problems and income. And we found that annual median household income for people with common mental health problems is £8,400 lower than for people without. And there are a complex range of factors that affect that but um, being out of work is one of of the biggest drivers. So the Adult Psychiatric Morbidity Survey is only published every seven years, but I'm gonna talk about some of those figures a little bit, even though they are a little bit old, because the granular insight that it gives you about mental health problems is really rich. Because as anyone who's ever experienced a mental health problem will know, you can't lump all people with mental health problems together. Everyone's experience will be completely different and there is a really big difference between different conditions and these figures start to get to that, which I think is important insight when we're thinking about what works to help people. So for example, people living with mild anxiety and depression, employment rates are about 6% lower than the general population. Once that gets to severe anxiety and depression, we're looking at about 28% lower. So when we're thinking about what works to support people back into work, treatment and support for mental health problems has to be part of the conversation because for many of those people who are living with mild anxiety and depression, getting people treatment and support rather than leaving that to develop into more serious mental health conditions can really help to get people back into work and bring those those figures of inactivity down. It's important to say, So i focused more on common mental health problems, so anxiety and depression in particular, because those tend to see the biggest effect caused by world events, things like pandemic recession. Whereas conditions like um, psychosis, for example, there tends to be less of a direct relationship, so I wouldn't expect to see a dramatic increase in conditions like schizophrenia as a result of the pandemic. Um, But for those people living with psychosis, the employment rate is only around 11 percent. So it's really important that we don't forget those groups of people in this conversation because their likelihood of getting back into employment is much lower and the type of support that people are going to need is, is very significant. And it's also really important that we don't write them off. It is perfectly possible with the right support and treatment for people with very severe mental health problems to have a really successful career with the right support. So we just need to think about how we do it properly. In terms of why people are out of work, um, so we at Money and Mental Health, as well as doing the kind of think tanky research, so doing the sort of you know analysis of national data sets and literature reviews, we also run an in-person lived experience community of just over 4,000 people. So we run it through a massive market research platform, which means that every week we get really rich live insights from people about their own experiences which means that we can bring slightly more up-to-date insights than the national data sets, but also that we can start to dig into the why, not just the what. And in terms of why, so we did a big piece of work looking at the effect of mental health problems on ability to work. Um, Big reason that comes out, which is fairly obvious, is that people are too ill to work. Just like any other health condition, you need time off work if you are really unwell. So that brings us back to treatment for health conditions. Whether it's a mental health problem or a physical health condition, just focusing on training and employment support doesn't treat someone's health conditions. And let's not forget that. Um, A second big reason was um, bias and discrimination in recruitment practices. So uh, we found quite clearly in the research where people had disclosed mental health conditions or talked about them publicly, people still felt that they were being denied employment opportunities on the basis of that. And that's still a really big issue that we need to address lack of flexible working so i should say that we did this piece of work just before the pandemic so obviously there's been a very significant change there but i think it's important to watch where we go with that and we have seen in our research community very significant fear and anxiety about the end of a significant home working and what that means for people as they feel forced to go back to the office in some situations and um, to jobs that perhaps aren't flexible enough so just to bring that to life a little bit more, if you are living with a mental health condition, it can quite often affect your sleep. So flexibility about the start time of your day can be enough to enable somebody who really struggles with insomnia to maintain a really successful job, just allowing somebody to start later, allowing people to work part time, allowing people to work from home, all of these things make a big difference. And then the the final thing that came out quite clearly was just gaps in employment history. So I think it's linked to that stigma and discrimination point. But having periods of sickness absence on your CV can be a, a real barrier to finding new work. And it's interesting to reflect for young people on what that looks like. If the beginning of your career journey is essentially a blank on your CV, it's very hard for people to overcome that. So being able to talk openly with employers and employers to understand that is really key. Um, And then just very finally, kind of, so that's a a little bit on the why and a little bit on how we understand. I'm not actually not going to go into the details about what employers might be able to do in response because I think we're going to get to that in some of the questions, but I would just say that it's really important when we think about this particular um, rising issue that we don't respond just with the interventions that have worked for young people who are out of work who aren't ill, because it can be a very different experience. And actually um, providing employment support that isn't tailored to people who are living with mental health problems, there is a risk that what we do is further alienate people who are too ill to engage with the employment support that's out there.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. And can we give all our discussants a round of applause? That was great. Um, So, uh, well, it's given us a huge amount to think about already. Uh, So join in the discussion, go to Slido and type in youth worklessness. Uh, You in in the audience will get a microphone coming around later on. To structure the rest of our conversation, I thought we would start about thinking about how we got here, changes over the last 20 years, maybe a little bit about the employment changes due to the pandemic. Then in the middle, I'll, I'll, we'll go back to mental health, kind of focus on what's going on right now, and then at the end, we'll come to, if not how to solve it, then at least, who has control of the levers that need to be pulled in order to help make help make a difference. Um, so let me uh, start by going live with um, one of our polls, which should be appearing now. I, I thought we'd start with some positivity. So I'm gonna get you lot at home to uh, so go. Yeah, think, think about some good news. So, what, what do you think is the most positive trend over the last twenty years amongst young people? I won't read the answers out. Um, although, if, um, if if Sam could perhaps read them, because I might ask you to give you, tell us what your answer is in a few minutes. I'm not sure how long those what those uh, those um, words will stay there.
3: Would you like me to read them? Um, no, not now. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. Just like remember
1: them. Remember them. <laughs> yes. I definitely might ask you what you think. Yep. Um And then. So, just before we go into our discussion as well, um, we have a couple of technical questions which I don't need to display on the screen. Uh, just, just asking Louise about the, the, the link between education and worklessness and how people in full-time education are kind of of show up in your figures. Could you just um, just clarify that?
2: Yeah, sure. So, at the same time, over the last sort of 20, 25 years, we have seen this increase in full-time education participation. And I think, I guess, some interesting findings we saw is that, like worklessness, there's big variation by different ethnic groups. Um, So we've seen, I guess, particularly for young people from Bangladeshi and Pakistani backgrounds, we've seen a a big increase in full-time education participation and, as we saw in the charts earlier, this decrease in worklessness. But what we've seen when we look at white young people, we've seen a slight increase in full-time education participation, but that's coincided with a a fall in full-time work. And actually, again, as we saw in that chart earlier, the proportion of young white people who are workless has stayed relatively stable, it hasn't changed very much. So I think that's just worth bearing in mind when we think about about education, employment and and ethnicity.
1: Thank you. Um, And at a very, very basic level, if someone is in full-time education and they don't count as worklessness in your statistics. Mm. Exactly,
2: that's right. That's great. Um, Full-time education.
1: And also just another statistical one, Uh, we've had a couple of speakers refer to NEETs, and you were talking about worklessness. Is there a difference there?
2: There is, so they're very similar but not exactly the same. So someone that's NEAT is not in education, employment or training. So crucially, that um, excludes people who are in part-time education and those who are in training. Whereas mainly for data-related reasons, our worklessness definition just excludes those who are in full-time education. So those young people who are in part-time education or in training, there will be a slight difference between the, the NEAT definition and the workless definition for those young people. But the overall trends will be
1: largely the same thank you but with trends all very similar yes exactly yes um, yeah, Sam, i thought i might put you on the spot <laughs> and ask you to re- respond give your own personal response to the poll um, as someone who's been in this area yeah uh, for some time yeah thank you oh thank you tara um, there we go so we well, are yeah. oh you make the, me feel l- old l- we'll start <laughs> no, sticking um, with our positiveness th- th- being positive
3: uh, which is a, g- a good place to start um i think obviously there's there's positives in in, in many of these i'd say the thing that we noted most uh, in the youth employment group uh, during the pandemic was that rise uh, of a proportion of young people in full-time education. That was something that we noted very strongly and talked to government about. Um, we did phrase this in the way of young people sheltering in education away from a very volatile labor market. Uh, now, that is that is a good thing because raising, raising qualification levels, maybe improving skills of young people is a good thing. Um, however, what we were also concerned about, on the flip side, was maybe young people sheltering in inappropriate courses, maybe falling out. Are colleges able to see that? Are uh, local authorities seeing those, those um, young people in, in, in education, maybe maybe falling out of, of, of education? So there, there was a, there was that, but we haven't seen that yet in the in the figures. So um, that that overall, I'd say is probably the most positive of all, reducing gaps between different ethnic groups is, of, of course, positive And it's great to see the, the data from that from Louise. I'd say on the last one, that youth worklessness hardly went up. It, it was something that we were warning about. And I'd say, you know, one of those things where the, the data lags so uh, of course you're always looking backwards which is very frustrating when you're in the middle of a pandemic and you're talking to government and they're saying you know but we're not seeing it in the figures um because we were hearing about uh worries from and um, particularly um regional governments so um, mcas uh, and local government saying that they were worried that they were seeing a rise in figures and i think that was really really important to respond to um well, I, I also think that there's something and, and again with our work with Prince's Trust is about what is the experience of those young people who are <coughs> workless so if, if they've been workless during the pandemic then are they further away than they ever were before and I think that's what we need to take into account um in thinking about responses yeah
1: yes thank you very much I mean and just sticking on the on the mm-hmm. pandemic Steve I, I imagine you also were worried when the pandemic hit. I mean, the 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 glib good news story you could take from Louise's figures is that worklessness went up by only two percentage points. Now, I realise, I realise, of course, there was a mental health crisis which we'll get onto later on as well. But just thinking about the labour market. Do you think that's fair to be to be
0: pleasantly surprised by the experience of young people in the pandemic? Uh, I think it speaks a lot to uh, huge amounts of effort that went in uh, in terms of the policy instruments that were put in place. So government did move swiftly, the Youth Employment Group, Sam right at the start there, encouraging that action. So we saw the political priority to, to stave off the worst of the challenge. Um, certainly with Impetus, we saw a lot of our charities, uh, like Think Forward that, that Sam mentioned, but also Resergo and so on, uh, very quickly pivoting to online delivery of services things that have usually been delivered very much face to face with young people. The other thing I'd I'd point out is I think the extraordinary resilience of young people themselves to a really tough crisis. Um, Those are the ones who are moving fast and without data, but really understanding the the challenges. And what we've seen is whether you've got that combination of a young person with the right support, they're able to be able to to get into work, even whilst there was such a volatile labour market. Um, What worries me, though, are those who, as the report points out, um, were disconnected during that time, perhaps still disconnected um, and we need to make sure that we're reaching those young people really effectively so uh, it is a good news story and we were very glad uh, that it happened but I think it came from a lot of concerted effort by a lot of people to, to make sure the impact wasn't as bad as it could have been and as actually the Resolution Foundation pointed out at the time we focused on reducing the scarring effects it was today's challenge but also one eye to what might this mean over the next few years. Thank you. Yes, right. I might come to the audience to see if they have any questions in a minute or so on, on this topic, so just get,
1: get ready. Um, but yes, I mean, it, 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 is, so it is the case that workers hardly went up, which is definitely a success compared to uh, the financial crisis. But then we also know that young people were the most likely to experience some kind of labour market disruption, whether that is to be put on furloughed or made unemployed or see their earnings fall away compared, compared to other age groups. And I was just picking up something that, that, that Helen said, I, I, I guess the point of Kickstart was to try and stop many young people from having that gap in their CV, because we know that employment gaps at the start of your career are really bad, but maybe there's been a bit less work to, 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 to deal with the, the problems of the mental health problems early on in your career. They, they may also have the same kind of long-run scarring, which I'm basically repeating what you said there, Helen. But, but is it really, you know, yes, we, we could reflect on the fact that £2 billion was spent on dealing with the labour market scarring, but maybe... A, not quite as much to deal with the the mental health uh, scarring impacts. Um, Is there anyone from the audience who'd like to add anything at this point? You don't need to feel any is that a a wink? Yes there is. Is there a uh, microphone available? Yes there is in the back row. So gentleman here please.
0: Thank you very much fascinating paper, amazing data, thank you. Um, I was just wondering from it uh, whether uh, there was anything that accounted for the wide variation in youth worklessness across different countries? I saw that you have looked at that, but what, what's behind that? And also, whether you encountered any data on variation of youth worklessness across regions in, in the United Kingdom, and whether there was anything that we might learn from that.
1: Thank you. You get super browning points for actually having read the paper because you're commenting on a chart which we haven't showed you. But yes, in the actual report, which of course you could download from our website, um, we do indeed show uh, youth worklessness across various European countries. Uh, Louise, do you want to start with that?
2: Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. So I guess to summarise, for those of you who haven't already read the report, um, at the moment the UK is doing just slightly better than average um, compared to other EU countries. So worklessness, yeah, it's just, just slightly um, Below the EU average. But what we've seen is that in recent decades, actually, the UK started to lag behind some of our neighbours, including Netherlands and Ireland. They've seen kind of big improvements in, in recent decades and have sort of overtaken the UK. Um, and I think, I mean, I think there's lots of things going on, I guess, different, you know, differences in labour markets between different countries, different education systems. I think they'll all have something to play. I guess what we did see coming back to this point of unemployment compared to inactivity is that the UK has a fairly better than average unemployment rate compared to other European countries but our inactivity rate is worse than the the EU average so I think, I guess coming back to the point of the the report, I think that rise in economic inactivity is worrying because that that is sort of worsening us in comparison to other other similar countries. on the regional point, I think it's a, a good point. It's, I guess, being blatant, it's not something that we've looked at in this report. Um, but I think it, it certainly warrants more more looking into, because I think, I guess, as we've, as we've seen, there's such variations between ethnicities and between by gender that, of course, that will then look differently in different parts of the, the UK.
1: Great, thanks. Any other panellists want to say anything? No obligation? No. OK, great. Um, thank you very much. I think we'll move on to the answers to our first poll then. Um, of course, yes. As, as Sam was struggling with, all of these things are good things, and so it's quite difficult to choose between uh, which of these is definitely the um, is definitely the best. Um, there you are. Okay, so uh, you all think that the rise in forced gender education was indeed the best thing we saw over the last decade. Well, I, I won't disagree with that. Um, but let's so let's move on now to think about, I guess, mental health, and particularly the, the, the last few years. So that is definitely a less good news story but a very important story um we've had a couple of technical questions which i don't need to display just people asking how how was the data on mental health that we that that louise showed and you you talked about collected um i think helen you addressed that in yours and louise you want to say a bit about where where the data you showed came from
2: yeah so in this report we've used sort of self-report measures of of mental health so this is Generally, people people filling out what's called the General Health Questionnaire, where they a- they answer 12 questions about their, I guess their their well-being and how they're feeling, and the scores of that, the scores to, of that um, questionnaire are used to to rate someone's mental health. And it's a, I guess you know, two things to point out. First of all, it is a self-reported questionnaire. It's not, you know, a medical diagnosis. We're not looking at people who yeah, have a formal diagnosis of anxiety or depression. Um, but I guess the benefits of using that questionnaire is that we can reach a a larger number of young people, um, and I guess it's it's a fairly widely used questionnaire, so it's used in lots of different data sources.
1: Thank you. Helen, anything to say on this one?
4: No, I suppose just to say, I mean, the the data on mental health is far from perfect and it tends to be either old or a bit general. So there are problems with all of it, but the trends all seem to go in a pretty similar direction. So I think even if you're looking, if we're using slightly different data sets, you can see a fairly similar pattern emerging in there.
1: Great. OK, thank you. Uh, we'll go to one of our questions online uh, from... Um and anonymous. Um, I'll tweak it slightly. I mean, the question I was going to ask, I think is very similar to this one is, and it's probably an impossible question, which I'm going to direct to Helen. Um, so the, the rise in young people who are not working because of that and have poor mental health, do you have a feel for how much it is the labour market that is causing mental health problems? Or do you have a feel that, or is this a, something more widespread in society and, and, and we labour market researchers here at Resolution Foundation are just picking that up when we look at labour market data?
4: Um, Well, it is a bit of chicken egg, isn't it? And and I, you know, at Money and Mental Health, we have a a slide that I use all the time um, for a similar question, which is, you know, is it the financial difficulty driving the mental health problems, or is it the mental health problems driving the financial difficulty? And I mean, the answer is, as you would expect, it's both. And even when you speak to an individual, as we do every week, about their own experiences of money and mental health problems, some people will tell you it was losing my job or it was the pandemic that caused my mental health to deteriorate and other people will say it was a diagnosis of depression and actually that meant that you know my my work situation or my financial situation deteriorated but actually lots of people can't tell you because life isn't that black and white is it really I mean how many of us could say during the pandemic was it struggling with your mental health that meant that you didn't go out as much or was it actually the effects of lockdown was it fear about getting ill you know there's a lot of complicated things happening there um mental health conditions and you know there's a lot of evidence about the the things that impact our well-being um and well-being is not the same as mental health problems but there is more evidence perhaps on what affects our well-being and good work is good for your well-being and good for your mental health but good work so for people who are not in work that can have a very big impact on your mental health so economic inactivity clearly is having an impact on the rise in mental health problems um but it doesn't it doesn't explain all of it and there are a lot of other things a lot of other things at play i talked about those figures from 2014 about the increase in prevalence of anxiety and depression for young women. There were a lot of media stories at the time. Those So the 2014 figures came out maybe 2018, something like, it takes a very long time for them to emerge into the world. And there was a lot of media coverage about Instagram at the time. And it was like, it's because of Instagram, that is why women's mental health is deteriorating. And it might be. But it's unlikely that all of it is Instagram. In the same way that it's very unlikely that all of this is about employment. But that doesn't mean you can dismiss it as a factor because it is—it's is complicated.
1: Mm. Absolutely, yes. Um, I pressed the wrong button during that answer. So <laughs> I wanted to show a question from from, um, from Adam uh, Coots, um, which um,
3: can I come in on? Yes, that of, course can, yes. So, oh, right, you, of course you can. Yes, of course you can. I was going to say it's not just about economic inactivity; activity it's about unemployment as well and this is a long-standing issue when i was working in a provider on the front line uh in employment services uh the the, the information we got from job center was very lean there wasn't a lot around what what were the the challenges or uh, or the um attributes of the people coming into the program but when we looked at our own data and what we were finding mental health was one of the biggest challenges along with um i think it was Chronic back pain and things like that, but mental health was the biggest one. Um, and I think uh, when, I mean, I went to Job Centre myself, um, and when I went there, I lost my job went to job centre uh, and nobody discussed mental health with me nobody signposted me to anything now that's one person and it was about 10 years ago so and i know things have changed and improved but this is something about the joined up services in a really practical way and i i want to bring that back to the we haven't mentioned them yet the government's youth hubs which are sort of popping up all over the country. Uh, Now these youth hubs are intended for young people both in the benefit system but not. Now this is really important when we're thinking about economic inactivity and those young people that could see something in their community that they could walk in the door and think about what support could I get. However, uh, I mean Steve you've done a lot Mm. more work on this more recently but health hasn't been part of that discussion yet and that could be a really big Uh, move forward from government to put youth hubs on a sustainable footing uh, but bringing together more services so bringing in the skills that we talked about uh, alongside the work coaches but also the the health services in that local area would be a a really major
0: absolutely Mike if I could come in on that as well Um, one of the things we found in a recent survey of uh, charities particularly looking uh, at uh, youth unemployment and young people from ethnic minorities was that actually the 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 majority of them are small, very localised, and deliver a much broader service than just youth unemployment. So they're looking at health and they're looking at community. They might be looking at questions of uh, income as well. So actually, we need to reflect this in a lot of the services. This is where civil society is doing a great job of innovating locally. Um, When we did the work on youth hubs that Sam mentioned, we looked at this question with... Uh, West Midlands Combined Authority and the DWP about um, what would be a really impact-led way of creating a youth hub. Um, what kinds of things would be those key ingredients that you need to have in place? Now, some of it was just a welcoming environment. Um, some will remember this because she was there right at the start of it um, and commissioned a lot of the work. You know, it's got to feel like an approachable place to come into, somewhere that um, you want to engage with. And actually, the the role of those job coaches in creating that welcoming environment is hugely important. The second one is about the right kind of data. Have you really focused on the groups uh, that you need to work with? Have you got the geographies right and are you reaching those groups really effectively? Um, Have you got all of those different parts of the services working effectively together as well? So are you combining a real sense of team and is somebody in charge around here? Because that tends to be the thing that really drives drives the piece of work forward. And lastly, are we making sure it's a fully kind of integrated system? Are we making sure that those young people can go in and find the right kind of access to the right kind of services they need? And I'm really interested in thinking about, you know, young people's anxiety around money and the impact it's having on mental health is, of course, not only linked to the positive mental health benefits we know about being in work, but the fact you're getting an income as well. So you've got a lot of these associated worries. Um, And again, I think building the right kind of service that really looks at is this having the intended impact? What can we do structurally to improve the quality of delivery to make sure that is the maximum possible impact it is a great way to design a service. Um, and the Youth Hub's, what we called it rather grandly the blueprint, um, is, is a great place to, to start, to look at how we might want to coordinate those services.
1: That's a very good answer. It's answered the question I was going to go to next. Now I'm having, some, <laughs> I'm having difficulty coordinating with my behind the scenes person because Adam's asked two questions and we're highlighting wrong one. But the question I wanted to focus on that Adam had asked is how do we create better, better quality back to work and active labor market programs that promote and protect the mental health of those that participate in them? We don't see much attention on this other than just links back to IAPTs. Hmm. Um, so it's really, yeah, very good, he's t- talking enthusiastically, about the, the positive example of youth hubs.
0: And I think at the, you know, the recommendation in the report to integrate that kind of support is something that perhaps the, the um, back-to-work providers already know instinctively. Um, there is a great opportunity to, to find out what works and to build on that and to really look at how that can be more mainstreamed in terms of employment support. Early days, as I'm sure you found, Louise, in the report. But really interesting area to explore further.
3: Yeah. I would just add to that that, um, you know, we need these to be on a sustainable footing. I think that's something that we, we all agree with, that, you know, basically a youth hub is just bringing together some partners, isn't it? And it'll look different in every place, as it should, but there there isn't a sort of sustainable... Footprint that it can build on, and we, you know, to to really have this impact, to be embedded in communities, for young people to feel that's the place for me to go, and I'm going to recommend it to my peers, kind of place. Um, You know, this is something we need to be thinking about ten years, twenty years. We need to be thinking long term. We keep talking about the long term, but that's how we need to think about these things. If I could add on, on this one, so there is a model in the independent individual placement and support
4: program which is targeted at people with more severe mental health problems, but has a really good success rate of supporting people with mental health problems back into work. And we don't seem to be talking about what we can, I don't mean in this room, but in wider rooms, talking about what we can learn from that and how we can embed those principles in broader employment support. Because I think part of this comes back to a, a lack of understanding about what it means to live with a mental health problem more broadly. That we still talk about mental health problems exclusively in terms of how we feel, which means that uh, what we consider to be a good response to a mental health problem tends to be about empathy, which is an important part of it. But mental health problems are considered in, in many cases to be a disability for a reason, because they affect not only the way we feel, but also the way our minds work and the way we think. So you're more likely to experience short-term memory loss, to have difficulty processing complex information, to find it difficult to switch between tasks, so attention shifting is, is really difficult, to be able to um, weigh up complicated information and make decisions and things like that. So There is a lack of understanding as well about what a reasonable adjustment would look like either under the Equality Act, a legally entitled reasonable adjustment, Or just generally what a good service would look like that understands the needs of people with mental health problems and bakes them into the design of a service. If we talk about supporting people back into work and we are saying that you are disproportionately more likely to be living with mental health problems if you're out of work, then we need to look at how mental health problems affect your experience of engaging with that support, which means... You know, one of the basics is that it needs to be multi-channel. So we know from our research that over half of people with mental health problems have significant difficulty using the telephone, and that doesn't—that significant difficulty. I'm not just talking about people don't like using the telephone. I'm talking heart palpitations, panic attacks an inability to engage with a telephone-only service. And in quite a lot of our other work at Money and Mental Health, what we do is we're working with banks, energy companies, utility companies, to talk to them about, if your support for customers in debt is a telephone service, you are failing customers with mental health problems. But we can translate this over to employment support. We can translate it over to mental health services. And while during the pandemic, it's really positive that a lot of services that were just face-to-face are now available through other channels, we need to be really careful that we're not pushing people into channels that are disproportionately less likely to be um, so less likely to be suitable for people with mental health problems. so there isn't a one size fits all solution here three quarters of people with mental health problems have that level of difficulty with one or more communication channel. so what we need to do is make sure that and it sounds like the basics, but actually for many of us working particularly in the kind of voluntary sector, you know that those things aren't in place, there needs to be face-to-face access, telephone access, and also web chat or email so that people can engage in the way that is possible for them. And that needs to be an employment support, but also there is a broader point about the universal credit system and how you apply for, but also manage and maintain a universal credit claim and access work support through those systems as well.
1: All right, thank you very much. I was going to ask you the next question as well, Helen, you said, um, sorry, more of my own, not one of the, uh, you you said uh, earlier on that you weren't going to say what employers could do right now, I think you probably, this is now probably a good time to say, what could employers be doing right now to to, to support and hire more young people coming out of the pandemic?
4: So, I mean, there is some things that can be done around recruitment. So if we're talking about getting people who are currently out of work, into work, um, on recruitment, so offering flexible working opportunities is a really big one. And The pandemic has clearly had a very positive impact on the availability of flexible work. So this is a good thing, and we just need to make sure that it doesn't go away. And also that we're thinking creatively about what flexible work means. It doesn't just mean working from home. So if we can all of a sudden shift our workforce from offices to home, are we also open to flexing working hours? You know, in the way that early in the pandemic when Schools and other childcare settings were closed. Many employers had to deal with the fact that their employees couldn't work a uh, nine-to-five day anymore because they also had childcare uh, to do, and everything didn't collapse. We didn't all—I mean, actually, many parents did collapse, but uh, the—you know—our our employers did not. We managed to keep going, and that's because we found other ways of working. So, what can we learn from that? How can we offer people more flexible opportunities? Um, there is a real issue, though, around a lot of the conversation about flexible work is driven by people who work in offices, um, who write reports and come to events like this and then uh, think about what it would mean to work flexibly. But if you work in hospitality, if you work in retail, if you work in construction, the opportunities to work from home are much reduced. So we need to think more creatively and differently about how you can offer flexibility into into different industries. Um, so flexible working and... and that kind of sounds like a small thing but a statement that you are an employer who is supportive and open to working with people with mental health problems can be a real signal that enables people to feel like they can they can work with you i mean i mean i run a charity so as well as doing research into this we think about what it means for our team and what it means for how we work and how we signal and demonstrate all the time to our current team but also to potential employees that. You can apply to come and work with us if you have a mental health condition and we will think creatively about what adjustments we can make to our work environment to enable you to thrive. Um, if we can do it as a reasonably small charity, I'd struggle to see how fairly big organisations really can't do the same. Because, you know, it's been a few years now, but the Stevenson Pharma Review of Mental Health and Work has a really good blueprint about what employers can do. I'd encourage anyone who's interested to go and have a look at it. Um, but it's it's good for business, which isn't why you should do it. But it's a really good reason why not to ignore it, mm. because um, talented people are not working at the moment who would like to be, and we're missing out on their on their contribution. Um, I won't talk about what you can do to enable people to stay in work, but I should say that that is as big an issue. So we're only going to see um, the levels of people with mental health problems continue to rise if we bring people into employment that then turns out to be not suitable. So that commitment to mental health needs to be embedded. And that isn't, isn't just, you know, fruit and um, wellbeing days and things like that. The key drivers of mental health problems in work are workload and money and stress. So we need to think about the structure of work and what work itself looks like so that we enable people to thrive, not just kind of make them feel better when they are really not thriving at all.
1: Great. I might take a question from the room in a minute, but before that I want to ask Steve something. I mean, in your introductory remarks, Steve, you you were speaking about young people right now perhaps showing a lack of ambition or increased uncertainty and anxiety because of the pandemic. That's that's definitely not good, right? This is this, this is probably one of the ways in which a mental health shock earlier on could have persistent impacts, not just on your health, but also on your labour markets so of collecting income.
0: Um, yes and i don't think we know what that looks like yet and it is very much anecdotal and i think this is an area we need to dig into a bit more it comes directly from my work with young people and speaking to the, the charities that impetus supports um it's going to be a complex issue uh, there's a very real experience of missed opportunities for those entry-level jobs particularly in the kind of sectors where young people were working, like hospitality. Um, similarly, uh, maybe a lack of access to work experience. But I'm certainly seeing, um, in, in terms of the the young people's take, and this is again very broad generalisation on, on what opportunities there are in work, one really positive trend, which is perhaps not to accept the existing structures that we've all grown to know about work, the nine to five and the, the location of work, and to think quite differently about it. But on the other hand, perhaps um, a worrying trend, and the Prince's Trust did some great research on this during the pandemic and have followed it up since, in terms of that sense of agency, that sense of uh, um, ability to be able to do certain roles. Now, some of that is abated. We're, we're seeing some more positive polling um, come through from young people themselves. and uh, uh, Youth Employment UK are doing the Youth Voice Census, which will give us another fresh take on that. The Youth Employment Group has a youth uh, group that particularly we, we listen to and explore these ideas with and that's to my point about making sure young people's voice is very much in policy making but you're right is there something in these these sort of two or three years that that cohort that's going to affect their future job prospects um, that's going to make them uh, join the workforce from a different starting point with perhaps longer periods out of work or perhaps not getting into the quality Uh, of job that they should be in or make the kind of progress that they're in. And I think that's an area that we need to explore a lot further and to understand a lot better. Thank you. Uh, Let me set off the last poll.
1: which is looking forward to the, to the future, which is who, who is best placed or who is, the most, who is the biggest responsibility to do something about this? And of course, the answer is all of the above. And of course, I haven't given you that answer. You have to choose which, which, which of these organisations has the most to do to solve the worklessness challenge. While you at home are thinking about that, does anybody in the room want to ask anything about uh, mental health or indeed about whose responsibility is it to solve, to solve this problem? um panelists could get ready because I might ask you to, <laughs> to, to pick as well but obviously we have had um a, a, a number of questions about this as well I mean what, what one of the back. oh sorry thank you very much you're in the in the darkness so I didn't spot you please Hi do there. ask sorry, your question yeah,
4: I can ask a question so it kind of interests me always that we talk about young people being work ready and actually our education system doesn't really set people up to do that which actually is a good thing we don't want. We want universities and colleges and schools to create thinking people that can ask interesting questions and find things out, blah, blah, blah. Um, But what role should employers play, I guess is my question, to train people and take people from that step of education into work? And should they, just like Helen's been talking about, um, publicly showing that you are going to be um, like able to take somebody with uh, a mental health issue to, um, into your workplace, there should be like a public statement of, we're going to train you. We're going to bring you into being work ready. And that's the job of me as an employer, not
2: you as a young person. That was
1: a bit long-winded, sorry. No, great. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. Thank you. And it actually links well with a question we've had online, which, um, which, where somebody is really asking, to what extent is youth worklessness problem a sort of symptom of things that happen way earlier, much earlier than that? So I think, you anyway, combining those two questions together is really, what, what's the role for schools and what's the importance
0: of the family? I don't know if any of our panelists want to have a go at tackling that. Steve does. Oh, well, just I guess on that that first point, um, I think that is hugely important, and employers can do a lot to make sure there is that bridge. We see far too many young people, um, whether it's uh, having graduated or school leavers, um, not being able to make that effective bridge into employment. And I think there's probably three things that that strike me uh, that are needed there. Um, Firstly, that that work readiness point, there's a lot underneath that about what the constituent parts of that would be, but you cannot beat that one-to-one support with somebody to help you with your CV or to help you structure your thinking in terms of an interview. and there's a lot of work that's being done by by many people. Careers and enterprise company and so on to make sure that there's effective career support in schools and in universities. And I think that's that's hugely important as well. Um, we need to be thinking about career trajectories much earlier on. Uh, and I was working with a brilliant little charity a few years ago that was doing primary school kind of careers advice. Um, so I think that's that's hugely important. Let's let's really go back to the start. Um, the second thing that really strikes me is that statement that. Um, employers can make. Uh, Another plug for Youth Employment UK, um, their Good Work Charter is is a really good example of where you can sign in and be part of a club to say I am going to make this this extra effort. I think the other thing is to make sure that we're looking and and we're doing this through the youth employment group and the subgroups we have. making sure that we're looking at apprenticeships policy. Um, what's happening to those young people who went through Kickstart and, and those who had a positive experience, You know, is that leading to longer term good quality employment prospects? Um, and it strikes me that we need to look at early careers a bit more uh, to make sure that we're really engaging with young people um, and, and improving that critical point of transition where lots of things are happening like Potentially you're going and living on your own and suddenly you've got much more money responsibilities and you're considering what your future prospects might, might be at this, this very compacted point in time. So I think there's a lot that can be done and I think there's an opportunity to, to do some more work in that area.
3: Can I come in on you. the skills? Of
0: course, point?
3: yes. Yeah, uh, I think that's a really, really important point about employers and their responsibilities around skills. Our recent report for NOCN uh, showed the, the disinvestment that's actually happening uh, around employers in the UK uh, and skills. So actually the investment that they're making is, is going down. Um, and actually I think it's that um, in the UK uh, we're, the investment of employers and the skills of their workforce are half of that of the EU per Per um, employee. Um, so we, we absolutely need to focus on that. Uh, going into that is uh, discussions around apprenticeships, is apprenticeships going to young people, or, or they're not at the moment. Uh, and I think that's a whole other discussion. I think the other thing um, I wanted to just talk about employers was um, which young people. So this report in particular is talking about those who are missing out. This isn't just, you know, a, an employer hires a young person, that's just recruitment. This is about those young people who are continually missing out. How are they engaging? How are they reaching those? How are they working with specialist providers to do that, which is part of the poll question. And then um, it would be remiss of me not to mention a piece of work that NFER are leading at the moment about the uh, essential skills for 2035, so looking ahead into, into the future labour market, Um, What are those essential skills that the future jobs are going to require? That's a really important piece of work. But then working backwards to say, what does the education system then need to uh, think about and change? And what do employers need to think about as well? So um, that's a long term piece of work, but it's coming out with really good regular papers, I I would recommend.
1: (laughs) Plugs are always on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much. We bring the poll back up. Uh, We are running out of time. lots of policy makers listening usually to our events so which of them uh should be paying attention to to this talk and the report? um oh employers okay well yeah employers should also listen they do have a very important role to play in employing young people Um, Thinking about government departments, well, yes, you're you're tying there between Department for Education, so that's either doing something with schools or doing something with with school level, or Department for Work and Pensions, Um, although interestingly, and and I should take this point to highlight one of Louise's findings, is is how few workless young people are actually claiming a DWP benefit, so this really isn't going to be solved by, let's do another kickstart but put a bit of mental health provision into it. Um, Helen, do you have any last words on policy?
4: Two very quick things. One is, um, I don't know if the Department of Health and Social Care are listening to this, but um, I think they are absolutely key to the solution here. Because, you know, if if we can see that rising inactivity due to health conditions, and particularly health conditions, is going to be a a real issue, supporting people into work is not going to treat those health conditions. So, um, yes, good work can help but good mental health support is going to be absolutely fundamental. So we need to make sure that they are in this conversation and are part of it. Um, the only final thing I want to say was to come back on, there was a question earlier about regional disparities that I don't think we were able to answer. Um, And I haven't given a plug yet, so uh, it's it's my turn. So we have a report coming out next month at Money and Mental Health looking at regional disparities in outcomes for people with money and mental health problems. So particularly looking at that gap in economic outcomes for people with mental health problems, which really varies in different parts of the country and really drilling down into why. Um, And part of that is about the employment market. So it's it's about the varying cost of living, but it's also about varying access to good, high-quality employment. So, so look out for that Look out for that one next month.
1: All right, thank you. I think I'll end it all together with a plug for our work. Um, <laughs> Louise is, is, is doing a two-year programme of work on young people mental health so look out for more reports under that banner. You can follow Louise Murphy on Twitter, just search for her name and look out for those. Um, but otherwise and I will thank the panellists uh, for their contributions today and thank you in person for coming and thank you at home for listening and we'll see you at the next Resolution Foundation webinar.
0: Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.